You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Good morning. If you will turn or tap in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1, I'll be with you in a second. So my first job was at a McDonald's. And for those of us who have spent any time working in the service industry, we don't really need to be convinced of human depravity. Um, To give you a bit of a timestamp on it, it was along about the time when Beanie Baby Happy Meal toys were all the rage. If you're too young to remember that, it was crazy. Adults with jobs and mortgages were going crazy over stuffed animals. It was so out of character. Of course, these days they would fit right in. You mean the people who filmed themselves having temper tantrums also liked stuffed animals? Who knew? But back then, it was so out of character. We were being inundated with requests for Beanie Babies. The phone was ringing off the hook, so one of our managers took the phone off the hook. The driver was wrapped around the building. We were selling so many Happy Meal toys that there were no longer any Happy Meal toys for the people that were actually ordering Happy Meals. And so our store owner made the decision that you couldn't sell Happy Meal toys separately anymore. You had to sell a Happy Meal. You had to buy a Happy Meal in order to get a Beanie Baby. And almost immediately, we lost count of the number of times that someone would come in, order a Happy Meal, get the food, take the toy out of the box, throw the food away, and then leave. We were flabbergasted. But I say all of that to say that on Saturdays during the summer, there was this dude that would come in a gray Dodge Ram van in the parking lot next to ours. And he would pull out tables and start selling stuff like coach handbags and Parisian rugs and leather jackets and watches and stuff. And if you're young and naive, you might not know what's going on. I certainly didn't at the time. I I remember thinking, wait, if he's selling coach handbags for $50, he can't have that much of a profit margin. But you guys can maybe guess what happened. One of our coworkers took the bait. She bought a $50 coach handbag. And it wasn't long before the glue that held the nameplate gave way. And that was that. And she decided to use it as a regular handbag. And three weeks later, the strap broke, and and that was that. We were heartbroken for a $50 handbag gone just like that. Minimum wage was in the forge. But yet, we had this crash course of how counterfeiting works. And just very quickly, there's this single, simple, yet obvious principle that undergirds all of counterfeiting. Things aren't counterfeited unless they're seen as valuable. Some 1965 years ago now, 
the Apostle Paul, the rambling man of the New Testament, was feeling kind of torn. Um, he wanted to, to go and, and share the gospel with people, but yet this situation in Ephesus where he had spent a full three years where he'd written a letter to was quickly becoming a headache. And humanly speaking, it's very understandable why this would be so. You know, as we saw earlier with our scripture reading or earlier in the book of Acts, you know, Paul lays out for the Ephesian elders, look, this, I'm not going to be able to see you guys anymore. I've poured out my soul for you for three years. You've seen me cry. You've seen me share everything with you. I'm leaving. I have to go. So you have to take care of this place when I'm gone. Because after I leave, there's savage wolves that are going to come in and not spare the flock. And they're going to draw away the disciples after them. And roughly seven years after he said these words, that's precisely what's happened. And so Paul has this internal spiritual biological clock. Hey, I have to go to as many places as I can, share the gospel with as many people as I can before I get whacked. And rather than come back to Ephesus and spend what may be the rest of his life trying to get all the issues sorted out, he dispatches his protege Timothy so that he can move along to Macedonia. And so this letter to 1 Timothy is sort of assistance for Timothy so that he can buttress him. Our message today is timely because as we look across the spiritual religious landscape, there are people offering counterfeit versions of Christianity. But in a way, it's also timeless because people always have. So if you join me in verse 3, we're gonna, our thrust is going to be verse 3 through verse 7 this morning. But in order for us to get our bearings, I'm going to start in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promotes speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. This is a word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, what we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. What we are not, please make us. For your son's sake, amen. So Paul's first instructions to Timothy are to find these teachers that are teaching different doctrine. The NIV says false. The New American Standard says strange. Timothy is to find these false teachers and get them to stop. 
Because if you look at fundamentals of false doctrine, there's going to be a fundamental characteristic that undergirds all false teaching. And that it's going to be a deviation from what God has revealed through Scripture. It's a deviation of sound doctrine. Now, on the surface, this looks kind of weird. Because, as we said before, the church in Ephesus is steeped in issues. How a worship service is supposed to go. Who qualifies to be a leader? Who qualifies to be a teacher? Who qualifies to be a widow? And how, when you find the widow, how are you to take care of them? It's steeped in issues. And you would halfway expect Paul to kind of did what he did to the church in Corinth. Hey, Corinth, you're doing this and this and this and this. Knock it off. But the first thing on Paul's mind for Timothy is not to rattle off the issues and say, you have to fix all of these, especially that leadership issue. That's huge. No, the first thing on Paul's mind to get Timothy to get this situation in Ephesus figured out, to get it corrected, is to find these false teachers and get them to stop. Kind of sounds awkward. If I were to ask you if, if baptism was important, you would say, yeah, absolutely. That's the name of our denomination. John the Baptist was the first Baptist, and we carry on in this tradition, right? But the word baptism or baptize occurs nine times in the New Testament. Over 40 times, the Bible, the New Testament refers to doctrine, to teacher, to teaching. Doctrine is important to God, and therefore it should be important to us. So when we examine these 40-some-odd instances in the New Testament, what we'll find is that these instructions by Paul to Timothy aren't some out-of-the-way outline. They're pretty much the New Testament pattern. For instance, in another instance, Paul would tell the church in Galatia, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him, called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Or one of the qualifications for an elder that Paul gave to Titus was that he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. In another instance, he rebuked the church in Corinth that if someone comes and preaches another Jesus whom we've not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you've not received, or a different gospel which you've not accepted. You bear with it beautifully. Or the Apostle John, the Apostle of Love. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him to your house or give him any greeting for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked ways. Or the Apostle Paul speaking, Apostle Peter speaking of false teachers. It would have been better for them 
not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. And Jude writing about their common salvation, when he was figuring about, thinking about writing them a letter, he told them, hey, look, I was about to write a letter to you about our common salvation, maybe another Romans, maybe another Hebrews, but as I got my ink, as I got my quill, as I got my scroll, I had this urge that I could not shake, that I had to tell you to struggle for, to compete for, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So when we examine the New Testament, A, there is a standard of doctrine. There just is. And B, there's this an objective absolute plumb line by which all teaching that purports to be Christian has to be measured by. Paul's first instructions to Timothy is to find these teachers in Ephesus that are teaching differently, that are teaching false doctrine, that are teaching strange doctrine, and he is to silence them. Some 1,965 years after this letter. And it sounds so quaint. It sounds like a completely different world. You know, dude, what's the big deal? And besides, how bigoted, how narrow-minded you have to be to believe that there's an objective, absolute truth. When we're all dead... And the future historians are writing the epitaph of our current culture. They're not going to be talking about its philosophical abilities. We, in our culture, have made the empirical subjective. And yet we've made the subjective empirical. That worldview will lead to a dumpster fire almost everywhere you take it. It is a land where all the data, all the facts, all the statistics in the world pale in comparison to one well-timed anecdote. It's a land of selective outrage, situational ethics, grievance archaeology. It's a land where truth attached to possessive pronouns carries far more weight than truth attached to just the definite article. When we obliterate objectivity, when we obliterate absolutes, we're asking for the end of almost everything. It's like Fyodor Dostoevsky once said, without God, everything goes. We're asking for the end of banking and finance, construction, arithmetic, orderly traffic, science, even music. Chris, I know we, we practiced it in the key of G. I just fell in my heart. We should do it in B flat. How would that go? No. The reason being is that God not only created our universe, but he inserted laws, physical laws, that can't be violated. Newton's laws and Ohm's laws, so forth and so on. So why would God insert our universe 
with natural laws that can't be violated. But yet when we get over to the spiritual realm, oh, you're good. Just believe whatever you wish. Just so long as you're sincere. Feel free to put the coexist bumper sticker on your car. I'll overlook the fact that in order for all religions to coexist, you have to take out everything that makes them unique. Let's just forget all of that. You do you. I wouldn't want to put any yuck in your yum. Just whatever. The New Testament would suggest that just as there are natural laws that can't be violated, there are spiritual laws that can't be violated either. God is holy. Humanity is not. And there's no human plan that can provide redemption. For all the talk about the biblical authors being anti-intellectual hacks, in the first few sentences of his gospel, the Apostle John forever changed one of the major tenets of Platonic philosophy. For the ancient Greeks, there was this principle called the Logos, by which the universe had form and order and purpose and was governed and had meaning. And so John, in his first few sentences, said, hey, look, this Logos thing, it was with God and was God. It was propos, a propos, face-to-face with God, implying that it's not a principle, it's a person. But yet, not only that, but this person became flesh and dwelt among us. And so as a result, whether it be Muhammad or Siddhartha Gautama Buddhism or Hinduism or Lao Tzu or Confucius or Mahatma Gandhi, or list them all. Or as the pastor Evie Hill once said, all the isms that should be wasms, list them all out. And they have one thing in common. They all said true things. But what separates Jesus from all of those is not only did he say true things, he's the literal embodiment, the physical manifestation of truth itself. That's why when he told the disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life, He didn't qualify it. He didn't say, I am religious truth or I am spiritual truth. It's why Paul could tell the church in Philippi, look, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything praiseworthy, think about those things. Why? Because they are ripples of the fountainhead from whom those attributes all come. It's also why when you look across the religious and spiritual landscape, any unbiblical worldview will eventually lead to internal incoherence, internal inconsistency, internal incongruence. Paul is warning Timothy to stop the false teacher because not only were they saying factually incorrect things, which they were, not only were they leading the congregation in Ephesus to an unbiblical, incoherent, incongruent doctrine or worldview, which they were, but since Jesus is the literal personification of truth itself, 
False doctrine is a distortion of who he is. Our doctrine of God determines our picture of God. And God wants that picture to be accurate. But not only does false doctrine have this fundamental characteristic in that it's a deviation from what God has revealed in sound doctrine through Scripture, but there's ultimately going to be some fundamental consequences. We see these in verse 4, albeit implicitly. Nor to vote themselves, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Now, apparently what the false teachers in Ephesus were doing were taking these endless genealogies, say the first six chapters of First Chronicles would probably qualify. And yet they were taking these endless genealogies and using them to further all kinds of speculations and all kinds of myths and thereby all kinds of heresies. But in a broader context, this is a plea. This, this is a warning for those of us who constantly hear the siren song of minutia. <laughs> it's one thing to discuss speculations. Iron sharpens iron. Contrast breeds, breeds clarity. And a lot of times when we're forming our worldview, that pushback helps to correct or fine-tune or bolster or overhaul our thinking. So discussing these things are good. They're, they're fine. It's quite another to be devoted to them. And when we're devoted to speculation, what happens necessarily are three distinct consequences. Number one, it's going to be working for division in God's people. So we have debated, contemplated for centuries about what it means to be made in the image of God. You and I can create and appreciate beauty and art and, and music. We can contemplate ourselves and others in our place in the universe. We are created to be a part of something, to long for something that is bigger than ourselves. It's not good for man to be alone, right? And also, once we find that bigger thing to be a part of, we have this inherent desire for unity within diversity because God is unity within diversity. It explains the platitudes in corporate mission statements. It explains the concept of university or e pluribus unum. All of these examples and more like them are human attempts for the unity that is only perfectly present in who God is. When Jesus was praying for you and I, that's what he was praying for. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. 
or what Paul told the church in Ephesus in his earlier letter. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. For the last 2,000 years, there has been pretty much this ironclad equation. When God's people are wholly devoted to Christ and what he's done, the tendency will be towards unity. But when that devotion that's rightly reserved for Christ gets replaced by devotion to someone or to something else, then biblical unity will always be thwarted. But not only does false doctrine lead to division in God's word, division in God's people, it leads to doubt in God's word. One of the major apologies for the uniqueness of the Bible in regards to other books of religious literature is that the Bible was written by over 40 different authors over a span of 1,500 years in three different languages on three different continents in a variety of contexts by a variety of education levels. And in spite of all of that, there's one fundamental message that undergirds all of it. By contrast, the Quran was written by one guy over the course of 40 years and it has two distinctly different messages in it. Am I supposed to be nice to the infidel in order to convert him to Islam, or am I supposed to kill him? This one message in Scripture is blatant. It's the eternal plan of redemption for God that ultimately finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. From soup to nuts, the Bible is about Jesus. <clears throat> In Genesis, Jesus is foretold. In prophets, Jesus is predicted. In the Gospels, Jesus is manifested. In the epistles, Jesus is explained. In Revelation, Jesus is expected. This one message of Scripture, not only is it blatant, it's also unique. If you poll every single other religion on the face of the earth, they're all in agreement that humanity has to do something. They're just all in disagreement over the something that humanity has to do. It's only biblical Christianity that says acceptance by God leads to morality. For all other religions on the face of the earth, morality leads to acceptance by God. And so as a result... If we are devoted to this message of Scripture, then all is well and good. But if we replace that sound doctrine with devotion to myths and endless speculation and vain discussion, then we've removed any unique impetus for gathering around it at all. I don't need the Bible misapplied to have vain discussion. I don't have to come to church to have vain discussion. I can do perfectly fine by myself. But not only does it lead to doubt in God's word, 
division in God's people. But ultimately, false doctrine leads to distraction from God's message. So, if we were to nail down what the job description is for someone who stands behind here regularly, sure, proclaim the gospel, but it looks remarkably similar to what Paul told the Ephesus elders on the beach of Miletus to declare the whole counsel of God, to bring the gospel to bear on everyday life. And when that happens, the Holy Spirit is free to confront whom he needs to confront, to convict whom he needs to convict, to comfort whom he needs to comfort. But when that message gets replaced, then those things don't happen. We know this is true from our own life, right? So a few years ago, I hadn't been a Christian for too long, but I was in the break room at my job, and I was trying to invite this woman to come to church, and I was making some headway, and then all of a sudden, this guy from out of nowhere comes and says, hey, dude, are you pre-trip or post-trip? What? Yeah, man, are you pre-trip or post-trip? A, I have no idea what you're talking about. B, right, not now, cut it, man. And of course she's like, wait, what? I gotta go. And then it's been 14 years and I haven't seen either one of them since. I would hope that someone came along and finished the job for me. And I would hope that that dude doesn't do that anymore, right? But that goes on. Also, the Facebook slacktivists, if you've seen them, they can get in knockdown dragouts, arguments over what the proper percentage should be between divine sovereignty and human responsibility and salvation. But yet they've never said anything to their neighbor about the necessity of salvation or the people who could spend hours upon hours trying to convince the unconvincible to dump babies or not. But yet they've never said anything to an unbeliever about the necessity of baptism. At a point in my life, the goal, the modus operandi of my entire life was to save the world from oneness Pentecostalism. Mission accomplished, right? I had all the arguments down. The Trinity is here, 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 here. You don't have to speak in tongues to be saved. Look here, here, here. Holiness isn't some sort of externally imposed dress code. It's the character of Christ coming through us. Look here, 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 here. I had the arguments all down. But during that time, I was almost categorically useless for actually sharing the gospel. That's what was going on in the pulpit in Ephesus. The gospel had been replaced by vain discussion by mere speculations. And our tendency is to think of, to read the situation in Ephesus and put 100% of the blame 
on the teachers themselves. How could they? While a lion's share of the blame does belong with the teachers in Ephesus, some blame applies to the congregation too because they platformed it. They allowed it to happen. There should have been people to say, there's no there there. There should have been people to receive the word with all eagerness, but yet examine the scriptures every day to determine whether or not those things were so. There should have been people to say, look man, talk about the crap while you're stacking chairs. The pulpit is far too serious a place for it. And we have absolutely no evidence that that ever happened, which leads us to think that maybe they had started down the process of making those words by Robert Murray McShane fruit. Most of God's people are contented to be saved from the hell that is without. They're not so anxious to be saved from the hell that is within. Maybe, just maybe they had started down the road of what Paul told Timothy later, to have itching ears, to collect for themselves teachers because they have wandered away from the truth and wandered into myths. The people in Ephesus were doing themselves a great disservice because not only does vain discussion and mere speculation and false doctrine allow the self-righteous to keep conviction and confrontation at arm's length. It doesn't provide comfort for anyone either. There's this dude in Ephesus, we'll call him Bob. Man, my life is a mess. It's, it's a hot mess, like cat turd on a hot tin roof. It's a mess. And the harder I work, the further behind I get. Chemo is kicking my hiney. I have struck out on every single role I have this week. I have struck out as a husband, as a father, as a son, as a brother. Our daughter has said that if I ever bring up Jesus again, she's not coming by the house anymore. I need to hear from God today. I need to know that the God who hung the stars knows be my name. I need to know that redemption wins, that the struggle ends. Please tell me that the God who had no tears for his own grief had sweat drops of blood for mine. I, I need to hear from God. The message is coming. I can't wait. Our message today is on Abinadab's great grandson. Are you, are you kidding me? Do you not know what, what's going on out here? Do you not see it? Do, do you not care? When you lose the baby without even having a chance to hold it, when the relationship ends, when the diagnosis comes, when you felt this thing of betrayal, the wealth of abuse, the hopelessness of injustice, when you were watching your heart being lost at sea, the fact that you may have the correct interpretation of Daniel chapter 7 
means absolutely nothing. That's what was so egregious, so insidious about the false teachers in Ephesus. Sunday after Sunday, they had the opportunity to tell about the one who had suffered the ultimate abuse, suffered the ultimate betrayal, suffered the ultimate injustice, but yet rose from the dead, thus providing this Ephesian congregation that their short and brutish and difficult life wasn't all there is. But yet instead of talking about that, they talked about what Jude would call waterless clouds or autumn trees without fruit. They had their marching orders, but these false teachers in Ephesus did not want any part of it. Kind of sounds like a character flaw, doesn't it? Paul wanted the teachers in Ephesus to stop because not only were they distorting the character of God, not only were they leading to division in the congregation in Ephesus or doubt in God's word or distraction from his mission, Paul understood that all false doctrine has a fundamental cause. Dirty doctrine comes from a dirty life. It kind of sounds hyperbolic, doesn't it? But it's right there in the text. The aim of our charge issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered off into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. The reason that the false teachers in Ephesus had wandered into vain discussion, had wandered into mere speculation, was because they had first swerved. And what did they swerve from? The antecedent is clear there as well. They swerved from a pure heart. They swerved from a good conscience. They swerved from a sincere faith. But notice Paul's word choice here. He's not talking about this heretical slow fade or lazy river. Like all they did was watch a few YouTube videos and bam, they're speaking heresy. Oh no, they, they swerved. A good conscience, a pure heart, a sincere faith were dear on 42. They were obstacles. These Christian teachers, these false teachers, already had their Christian incorporated path planned out. And these things were just in the way. When we hear dirty life, the tendency is to think of something scandalous, engaged in embezzlement, involved in adultery. There are certainly instances of that in church history, definitely. The tendency is to think of something scandalous, but it doesn't have to be that at all. It could be something so simple as being taken captive by empty philosophy and deceit according to human tradition or according to the elemental spirits of the world rather than according to Christ. 
It could be something so simple as refusing the transformation that comes about by the renewing of our mind. Also, the tendency is to think of false doctrine and say, hey, redemption, we're, we're good. I mean, the dude today is a little weird, but Pastor Justin is solid. We don't have anything to worry about. False doctrine is for TBN. But this stuff hits a lot closer than we think. In many places that we would consider conservative, evangelical, they've distilled the kingdom of God down to buildings, budgets, and baptisms, sometimes in that exact order. Meanwhile, there's scant evidence that there's any positive impact in their community as well. Just a span of non-disclosure agreements. But that's still a little macro. It's, it's still closer. For months, we've been inundated with it. Hey, Christian, all we have to do on November 3rd is choose the correct crazy grandpa, and we can have utopia. <laughs> While we certainly want to seek the welfare of wherever we live so that we can live quiet and peaceable lives like Paul will later tell Timothy one chapter over. It's so seductive to forget that we're exiles here and that our ultimate citizenship is in heaven. We Instagram our mission trips these days. <laughs> Hashtag least of these, right? But the Sermon on the Mount, the spirit of it seems to make clear, hey, look, if all you go on a mission trip for is to get the likes and the comments and the pokes or whatever's going on, when you come back, then the likes and the comments and the pokes are all you're going to get. Or why do we feel the the urge to... Set up single people in church or, or comment about their singleness. Aren't we implicitly saying that it's impossible to be fully complete in Christ unless they have an earthly mate? Their instructions are the same as our own. Therefore, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him, firmly rooted and established in the faith and abounding in thanksgiving just as you were told. Their instruction, their encouragement to us is the same as we hope it would be for them to run to Christ. And while if they're running to Christ, they happen to see someone out of the corner of their eye that makes them think, hey, let's be fruitful and multiply together, then fine, that's perfectly fine. But if that never happens, that's perfectly fine too. Every false doctrine, these instances, and a thousand more like them, are symptoms of something else, of misplaced hope, of allowing culture to dictate doctrine and practice and beliefs rather than it being informed by Scripture itself. By averting our gaze ever so slightly, ever so gradually, ever so quickly from the author and finisher of our faith. But Paul has the cure. 
the aim of our charge, or if you have the New American Standard, the goal of our instruction is love. And hearing that, we fall into one of two traps. Trap one, this is precisely why we shouldn't talk about doctrine at all. Jesus said, the world would know we would love one another by how we, we're his, by how we love one another. So let's forget all this talk about doctrine. Let's love one another. Let's link arms and tell each other about Jesus. It's impossible to biblically love without sound theology. Number two, for all of Paul's talk about love, he's sounding pretty hateful. How do you define love? We live in a culture that has bifurcated, that has separated the great commandment. Meaning, if I endeavor to love the Lord God with all of my heart, body, soul, mind, and strength, that means that I can't love my neighbor as myself. G.K. Chesterton once said said that he who marries the spirit of the age will soon be a widower. If you haven't noticed, if you look outside, it's crazy. What used to be unthinkable or beyond the pale is now sacrosanct or sacred. The guilty are now victims. The peacekeepers are now agitators. If we live in a world of absolutes, in a world of objectivity, which we do, then we would do well to not do what our culture is doing, making a national pastime out of taking down moral fences. But to heed what G.K. Chesterton said in another place, The only people that really should be tearing down fences are the people who know why they were put there in the first place. Even inside the church, we're not immune. In the name of love, we've removed any and all barriers to the gospel, even those that are essential to the gospel itself. If we live in a world of objectivity and absolutes, it's not loving to tell someone they're okay when they're not. It's cruel. Biblical love, this love that Paul is speaking of, this love that seeks the welfare, the well-being, the highest good of another person, even to the extent of our own personal welfare, our own personal well-being, our own highest good, comes about by a pure heart, a heart without fine print, a heart that does things for people without knowing whether or if there will ever be anything coming back in return. It's also a love that comes from a good conscience, which means a short account with God. We come to God with and ask him to cleanse us on a regular basis. And not only that, but we live at peace with others in as much as we can. Because if we're irreconciled to our brother or sister or neighbor, we can't love God as we should. And also it comes from a sincere faith. 
not the hypocritical faith that is perfectly at home within stained glass windows, but yet forgets that God knows all and sees all. And of course, we have the perfect example of biblical love. Jesus once said that greater love has no one than he who would lay down his life for his friends. But yet he did one better and laid down his life for his enemies. Sin, disobedience, breaking of God's spiritual laws will always result in the death of something, the death of innocence, the death of a relationship, of, of trust, of a relationship, of the death of someone or something. But ultimately, since all disobedience of God's law is against God himself, then eventually God requires the death of our entire selves. Jesus, who knew no sin, became the literal embodiment of sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus lived a life that we never could have lived. And his reward for that is he died a death that we should have died. But he was resurrected, and as a result, he has given all those who seek him the life that humanity was always meant to live, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your plan of while we were yet enemies of you, you gave us a way to be in fellowship with you forever. Jesus, thank you so much for your sacrifice, for making all of this possible. Holy Spirit, we ask you to convict us of any false doctrine that we may hold that point us away from your character. In Jesus' name, God's glory. Amen.